Welcome, my friends. You're listening to Be On Air, your companion for launching and growing your own podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Marks. This show is all about the transformational journey of sharing your message through podcasting and entrepreneurship. Learn from diverse experts and guides as we dive into the heart of podcasting, branding, and online business and share blueprints to achieve your purpose. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you want to start a podcast or want to grow your show, I invite you to book a free strategy session with me via the link in my show notes or on my website. That's all for now. I hope you enjoy the show and I'll see you on the other side. All right. Uh, my guest today, I'm excited, guys. My, de- my guest, I'm always excited, I know, but I'm, I'm especially excited today. My guest is a writer, teacher, and a former monk in the bhakti yoga tradition. We're going to dive into what that means, so don't you worry. Jai Jagannath speaks and presents on sacred literature, such as Bhagavad Gita, and the Yoga Sutra, and does personal coaching, teaches yoga and meditation, and writes for magazines and blogs. His Instagram account, Urban Sage Deliberates, is full of extremely thought-provoking content, writing, posts, and as soon as I read him, I knew I wanted to talk to him. It took me a little while to reach out, but I'm really happy he made time. So Jai Jagannath, Jai, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, There's a lot that I want to talk about today. And because some of the subject matter that we want to go over is, I'm not sure what the right word is, but it's it's contextualized to the Vedic tradition of India and there's Sanskrit involved. Uh, I'm hoping that you can help me translate it for a broad audience so that people can kind of follow along. We're going to get into some really interesting spiritual topics. And we're going to do so first by going into broadcasting. And and Jai, one of the things that I noticed first about you were you were, you were doing these live streams on Instagram and you were having basically like an impromptu podcast just, just manifest on Instagram. And you guys were engaging in some really cool topics. And so I just kind of wanted to um, ask you about your journey with with broadcasting messages online, how that brought you to live streaming, and then eventually how that brought you to your podcast, Arise. Okay. Um, well, broadcasting in general, the world 2020 saw COVID happen and everything became, well, one became obliged to enter into the virtual universe and engage with it a lot more, whether you liked it or not. And so I was at the time working at the Bhakti Center as an educator and you can say yoga teacher and so on. And so as the Bhakti Center had to shift into a more online presentation, one of the ideas that they came up with was broadcasting or doing some sort of podcast. And the way that we approached it was by doing live streams on Instagram and or on Zoom and Facebook and so on. And so they asked several of us in the Bhakti Center if we could do these podcasts. So I was selected with one other who was a close friend of mine, Kishore Chandra. And they asked us if we could come up with a podcast and just do it primarily to give nourishment, at least to our congregation who may have felt alienated and demoralized because of not having access to their spiritual nourishment for the week. And so that was kind of the, the, the main inspiration to get it going. And like we probably started like a week or two after lockdowns happened. So we got it going really fast. 
And it was just a form of service. Our, our tradition focuses a lot on service to God and service to that which is coming from God, which is everything, and especially to our congregation. So it just became a form of service to have online conversations. And we made the conversations very personal about how we were processing the lockdown experience, the COVID experience, and how we can connect that experience to the actual metaphysics that informs our spirituality. Because often when dealing with reversals in life, uh, particularly for religious spiritual people, it can be very easy to just act according to habits that are disconnected from your knowledge. And, And so the idea of our podcast was to reconnect our experience to our knowledge which quickly gets divorced in times of strife if you're not very attentive to it. So I was kind of inspiration for that first podcast. We called it Chit Chat. Um, the word chit actually means it's Sanskrit. <laughs> As, well, the word chit in Sanskrit means knowledge. And it can refer, it means knowledge. It can refer to consciousness. The word chit in Sanskrit can also refer to like the spiritual domain of things. So it was a play on words, chit chat. And like our tagline at the time was get your chit together. You know, get your knowledge together, get your consciousness together. And the the basic thrust of our message and presentation in that podcast was that all problems that occur in the outer world have their seed form in the inner world. So as long as people are wrestling with the outer world, which is really an effect of an inner cause and neglecting to address the inner cause within, then they don't actually solve their problems. In fact, their efforts are sabotaged by the neglect of the inner world, which is the cause of the problems outside. So that our whole theme was like, get your shit together. That, that, that's like the primarily important thing. And it was, it was a cool experience to see our community join the broadcast because we did it as a live stream. It was really cool to see the community getting around that and feeling nourished by it. We were getting messages every week for how they were feeling nourished by that, how they were connecting to it. Even a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a friend of mine, I messaged a friend, I didn't message him. He shares a story on Instagram and I like laughed at it. And he said, oh, it's interesting that you messaged me right at this moment. I'm listening to Chit Chat right now. And it was like an old episode from like two months ago. And then he played the episode for me, like part of it to say, show that he's listening to that. And he just shared how much he was impacted and how much it was helping him. So it was a very, it's a very inspiring experience to know that your work is having some effect. I think as a general point for artists or anyone who's a creative of any type, um, creatives are very, mm, how you can say, they're like very sensitive individuals um, because the process of creation is like having a child, you know? And it's like, if you have a child and anyway, just for sake of having fun, suppose you're, people think your child is like, but ugly, you know? So they, 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 they like see your child and they're like, oh, oh, okay. They don't want to say anything. It's awkward. So I think being a creative of any type is like having a child. And so it's like a very, it's kind of like a very vulnerable thing to put something out there and to not get any sort of positive feedback. Like you don't know how people are going to respond to it. So seeing the positive response for that, it was a great enlivening experience and it became an initial inspiration for, it became one of the inspirations for getting into a recent podcast that I've started called Arise, the Honest Men's Podcast, which is also similar related to helping us figure out how we can get our shit together as men, but specifically 
men in the spiritual domain of things, religious men, spiritual men, or the gentlemen, because this world, at least, I don't know if for you or how you observe it, but at least for me, it seems that this world is really hard to navigate if you're a gentleman. Now, if you're just like a, a jerk, you know, a criminal, um, or just like a toxic person in general, this world seems like great. But if you're trying to like be a man of like principle and embodying higher ideals, it seems pretty difficult. And it occurred to me that a lot of men in spiritual communities are not doing a really good job. So I thought, okay, it'd be cool to do a podcast that's addressing those sorts of men. Um, if anything, just to let them know that they're not alone in their experience and also to galvanize them to join groups that can help them do better. So this is my experience and trajectory with that. Thank you so much for laying that out so succinctly. I want to highlight a, a few points, so bear with me. First of all, for the listeners, there's a couple things here. One, a lot of times people get bogged down by the idea of starting a podcast, like they need to have everything in order. They need to have brand strategy and they need to have amazing artwork and they need to have intros and outros and sponsor messages and all this stuff. And one of the things that that you're showing is that you you used Instagram, you used your phones and you were able to create a podcast basically with, with no startup cost whatsoever. And you were able to create impact for people and people actually reached out and the people are still listening to that stuff. And so there's no barrier to entry and all that's required is having those conversations, sharing the truth, sharing our truth. And I just think that's like a huge, important uh, piece. And you were talking about chit too, that, that Sanskrit term. And I'm, I've, I don't know if it's an exact parallel, but kind of mindset as we as we call it today or or now, like it's it's pretty. I say across the board, many coaches from Tony Robbins to to whoever are going to say when it comes to any business venture, or any creative venture, getting the mindset right is like eighty percent of the battle. And so, you know, arming ourselves with knowledge and and understanding of deeper truths and and not so much worrying about the externals is super important. So I think that's a really inspiring story. And I'm I'm you know. For, for those listening, like, how did you get here? You were a monk, you're, you're a writer. Like, how did you get to this point where you were able to discuss these ancient Indian literature scriptures? Well, my spiritual journey started when I was 18. And I like to say with all spiritual journeys, they begin with questions. Any genuine spiritual investigation begins with questions. And you know, excuse my Sanskrit, but not the bullshit questions like what happened on last week's episode of, you know, whatever, Game of Thrones, but like the existential questions, who am I, what is the purpose of life? These sort of questions that tend to vex humanity since the beginning of beginningless time and um, to which um, people have always been looking for answers. A lot of humanity, especially modern postmodern humanity distracted as we are by our various gadgets and toys to play with, we usually tend to allow these questions to sit on the shelf and collect dust until something happens in our life that obliges us to look at them. So at the age, ripe, ripe old age of 18, I had a question that, was in, that got launched me into a spiritual search. And that question was, is romantic love a real thing? That was actually the question that started my spiritual life. Um, I never involved myself in romantic relationships at all before I was a monk or at that time, 18. But I was observing them. And what I was observing was like, this love looks a little fake. 
you know, seeing all my friends, I saw how they were using and exploiting each other. My mom failed marriage and failed relationships. So I was really wondering if there was such a thing as romantic love and how true it was. I even remember asking my mother and a Dominic's it's like a, like a chain mega store, food store, whatever. And we were in the Starbucks of that store. And I remember asking her like, will I ever find love? And she gave like some real cheesy, you know, sort of mother answer, everyone finds love. And I remember distinctly hearing it like, wow, this shit is really fake. <laughs> like this ain't a real thing. And I remember being like, okay, anyway, so during this period of looking for questions, I started reading philosophical books. I started reading a lot of religious books, really trying to find an answer to the question of romantic love. And in this period of about eight months when I started doing this, um, I came in across a guy who was into hip hop, underground hip hop, got into underground hip hop for a minute. And all his music was centered around like these spiritual ideas that I had never heard of before. So I became his friend just to, you know, pick his mind about where he was getting the inspiration for his music, which sounded very spiritual. Topics like reincarnation. He was talking about Gita, which was something I had never, Bhagavad Gita, which is like a, the, you know, the whole old ancient Hindu Bible as the secular world might call it. So I became his friend just to pick his mind after about, yeah, it was about a period of eight months of befriending this person. I asked him about going to a temple. He told me about two centers. And one of them was a Hare Krishna center, which was very near to my house. So I went there first to the Hare Krishna center. I go into the, the temple. My experience was actually really whack. I go into the temple and I walked in with my shoes on because you don't take your shoes off ordinarily in, in the Western world. And I remember one Hindu guy like blasted me oh, for, for being like a nonsense or a rascal for walking. And I was like, chill out, homie. This is my first time. I didn't know, you know? <laughs> So I took my shoes off. I remember walking to the Hare Krishna temple and, you know, these guys with the funny ponytails dancing in a weird way. But I wasn't actually turned off by that. There were deities on the altar. That didn't, I was intrigued, but I wasn't really turned off by it. But what did turn me off about my first experience was the speaker in the class. Um, there was a class at one point and he, I don't know what he was talking about because it's new philosophy. So everything was like, going over the head mm-hmm. but one thing word he said at least three times was condemned and so the way that translated to me from a person growing up in like a judeo-christian western world is like all oh, these people are like the middle eastern traditions they just straight up condemning everybody that's not them so i kind of left with no interest to go back and three days later after this experience I'm in my room preparing for an audition with the Lion King because I was a dancer. I was a trained ballet dancer for about a decade before I joined the monastery. And I was preparing for an audition with the Lion King in one room in my mother's house that had many books. And there was one shelf, which was like the spiritual bookshelf. So I'm singing, it's a circle of life or some song I'm singing because it was like a singing audition also, even though I was going primarily for dance. And I pulled off one book from the shelf called The Science of Self-Realization. And I pulled it off and then I'm going to put the book back, but I look at the cover and I'm like, homie looks mad familiar. Who is this? And it turns out that the the cover picture was of the spiritual perceptor of the Hare Krishna movement. And the only reason I recognized the picture is because when I went to the Hare Krishna temple just three days before, they had this huge statue, like wax 
we call it murti or form or statue. And the center of the temple room, it's made out of wax. So it looks really realistic when you don't know it's a statue. So I literally thought he was sitting in this big seat looking at the altar. So anyway, this is a little embarrassing, but I remember like I'm standing on the side of the murti and I'm trying to get him to look at me. You know how like when you like stare at someone long enough, you like send out a, a signal or an energy and they look at you. So I'm trying to get the, the, the statue to look at me because, you know, I'm spiritual. I have arrived. I'm a super spiritual person. You should acknowledge me. But I was like, man, this dude's not looking left or right. He's just like <laughs> fixed on the altar. So I walked in front of the altar to get his attention. Then I realized it's a statue. I was like, oh my, okay, okay, just back up slowly. No one knows what you're thinking. It's okay. You're all right. No one, it's not embarrassing. But because of staring at the murti for so long, it etched an image in my mind. So when I saw the book cover three days later, I was like, this is the guy from the Hare Krishna temple. How did this book get in my house? So I began reading that book that night and by the next morning, I was a Hare Krishna. I was completely sold out and convinced by the knowledge presented in that book. And I started practicing immediately overnight. The main elements that convinced me about the book was that the conclusion was about romantic love with Krishna or the supreme being, the ground of all being, termed as Krishna in the Hare uh, Krishna philosophy. And that there was possibility for romantic love with, that, with the supreme entity, which I was like, that's wild. And that the romantic love we see in the material world is a perverted reflection of the archetypal ideal or primordial love that is part of a spiritual domain. So that was wild for me, given the sort of inquiry that was fueling my spiritual investigation. And that the love we see in the material world is kind of like a false propaganda. So these are kind of the ideas I got from the book that convinced me to investigate this philosophy and then after, I, it was seven months after that, that I ended up joining the monastery. There are a few events in between, but seven months after that, I joined the monastery for the purpose of understanding romantic love, which is an interesting reason to join a monastery. And then I yeah. spent the next 13 and a half years in the monastery after that. Wow. So, that so it became very much a part of my, my life, my preoccupation. Pretty austere times, I imagine, in the, in the ashram. I don't know. Hare Krishna monasteries are a lot different than like, honestly speaking, when we say monastery, I know in the Western world, we have like a very specific sort of image, which is like, it's true. It's a monastery, but it's somewhat like cheating. Cause the Hare Krishna monastery is like kind of like mad fun. Like we eat mad good. Like no one eats like us. And in fact, our eating is so extraordinary when people would come outside and see like the monks eating, they would be like a sign. Like, first of all, how do these people eat this much <laughs> and how they eat like this every single day, like very rich foods. Uh, and we are, our philosophy involves singing and dancing, you know, as a person from a singing and dancing background, it was like great, actually. Um, it was the austere part about living in a monastery is the letting go part of an old ego and the regeneration of a new one. So you have this old identity related to a, a more conventional world and you kind of sacrifice that identity for regenerating a new identity in relationship to a, a totally foreign domain. So that part is difficult and not everyone makes it through that transition period because it's hard letting go as you may have experienced. It's a very hard letting go. 
But other than that, a lot of the experience was quite overall a very fun and enlivening experience. And that kind of, that's kind of what led me into, of course, this is my spiritual journey background. And then when I left the monastery about five or six years ago, about five years ago, I left the monastery and I quickly ended up in New York. And so informed by 13 years of study and practice, I naturally ended up in, you know, the education department of the Bhakti Center and teaching and doing more of the same. So that's kind of the, my background. We love talking about ourselves, so I try to make it as succinct as possible. I could go on forever, of course, naturally, due to ego. Well, you're also an infinite eternal being, so you literally go on forever. <laughs> but um, no, that, that is such a beautiful journey, and thank you for walking us through it. But I feel like um, I definitely resonate with many parts of that, and especially how good the food is at the temple. For anyone listening, find yourself a Hare Krishna temple, go on a Sunday, get some awesome, uh, we call it prasadam, which is like offered food, food that's been blessed and, and offered to God first. So you, you teach, you speak, you do webinars, you do seminars. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like nowadays in this digital age, everyone is being challenged with like how very much like what you mentioned, you wanted to serve your congregation still. Like we're trying to reach our people through the internet, through the digital medium, and we're having to package our information. And that's one of the reasons why podcasting is so uh, interesting and useful is, you know, you have audio, you have video, you can make courses out of it. What could you talk a little bit about what you're teaching now and and maybe even a little bit of like your workflow or your process of how you collect your material and then present it? Yeah, well, I, um, well, I'm getting ready to teach some Bhagavad Gita seminars. So Bhagavad Gita is, is kind of like the Hindu Bible. It's a classic you can call it yogic text or a classic Vedantic text. Um, practically anyone in any spiritual group is going to be referring or teaching the Bhagavad Gita. So I, I'm getting ready for some Bhagavad Gita seminars coming up this month and next month. But besides that, I teach, I've taught Yoga Sutra, I've taught um, Bhakti literatures, because I my tradition is called as a Bhakti Vedanta tradition. So I, Bhakti meaning devotion. So I teach devotional literatures. And um, for me, the process, my process is, it's uncomplicated because I have, usually it takes me about 10 minutes or less to come up with the entire direction of a course. Like, because when you spend over a decade intensely learning something, it becomes almost as a part of you. So you have a certain clarity about the knowledge when you're dealing with it or engaging with it. So when it comes to like, okay, we want you to teach the Bhagavad Gita. Now you've been studying the Bhagavad Gita for years and years and years, not just like casually reading, but like actually studying, looking at different commentaries, um, giving classes. And so recapitulating the knowledge over and over and over again, it becomes very much a part of you. So when it comes to like getting courses ready for me to conceive of like the direction I want the course to go it takes me 10 minutes means like I'm having a bad day. <laughs> Otherwise within minutes, I can conceive of the whole direction I want the course to go. And then the rest of it is just um, fleshing it out, like putting it together. I personally like to put together workbooks. I often put together PPT presentations because I realize a lot of people, especially millennial generation, Gen Z generation, we don't have the ability to just sit and assimilate sound vibration. We need visuals. We need, and so I usually create 
um, you know, workbooks, I create PPTs. So that's like the hard work of building a course for me. Coming out with the course is like the easiest part and coming out with the direction, very easy. And I imagine it would be easy for anyone who's accustomed to engaging with a certain knowledge all the time. And it's just fleshing it out. It's the hard part. Now, after that, I, I have the harder part after that is getting people interested in what you have to share. So that's been the hard part. Like, I don't go out of my way to make people attracted to what I have to say. I largely depend on whatever little charisma I have. I think I have a lot of it for those who are accustomed to engaging with me. I have enough charisma that I just kind of depend on that. Um, I'm a little funny. Probably in my estimation, I'm a lot funny, but <laughs> that's not, you know, in case anyone's hearing me, like, I don't find anything he says funny. I think I'm a little funny. And often when giving my classes, I try to integrate humor to help because honestly, the literatures of yoga and Vedanta, they have a strong element of self-abnegation to it, which people find off-putting. Letting go of the ego, which includes all the things connected to that ego, like friends and family and political commitments and all these sorts. There's a strong element of self-abnegation, which is hard for people to digest when reading these sorts of literatures connected to this sort of Eastern spirituality. And so how do you make that digestible? So you depend on your humor, personality, charisma to do that. Uh, I, I guess similar to what the social media world is like, you try to use your personality to sell things. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's another conversation, but I kind of, I guess I depend on that. But in recent times, I've had friends who have stepped forward to help me like market things um, and kind of get the message out more. So you kind of require that part because you can do the preparation. You can assemble everything, but now how to attract people to that message. Most of the people I notice that come to my courses are people who are accustomed to either hearing from me already, they, they like me from social media, they, they find me to be particularly articulate or a good teacher. They are people I already know and engage with, so they end up coming. Um, so how to get it out to a, a wider, broader audience? I haven't put that much energy into that. I'm, you know, I'm kind of satisfied in the sense that, like, okay, whoever comes. But I have some friends now who are helping me try to expand the scope because the message is important. Maybe others can derive a lot of benefit from it. Yeah, um, there, there's so much there. Real quick, I'm curious, when you make workbooks, and then I want to dive into some of the, the deeper things you said, but when you make workbooks, what are you, what are you using to, to make that? I use my little notepad on my computer and then I send it to someone to like make it look nice. <laughs> oh, nice. That's smart. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's probably what I need I, to do. <laughs> I, I'm an older millennial. I'm an older millennial. So I'm like kind of dumb when it comes to like technology. I'm pretty techno illiterate, especially living in the monastery for 13 years when the technology was really starting to ramp up around right. 2008. I was in the mm -hmm. monastery doing monastery stuff. I like, the only thing I checked on my computer was my email and right. like articles around spiritual topics. I didn't, I didn't even know what YouTube was until 2012. Like I had heard wow. of YouTube, but I had, I never engaged with it. I didn't have a smartphone until I didn't have a smartphone until I came to New York, which was like 2017. So I was like, I'm pretty tech, techno illiterate. So I require a lot of assistance. I, I call them acolytes. So people who like kind of, I sold my personality to them. They're kind of into me. They love me for whatever reason. So I call them acolytes. So I just get my acolytes to do everything. 
So I just come up with the general idea in a very rudimentary form. And then I send them the thing and I like, make it look good. Oh, that's, I mean, that is, that's one of the hugest tips to scaling any business venture too, is to have a team supporting you. You can't do everything. So, I mean, that's a really great piece of advice actually. And then kind of tying that into some of the other stuff you're saying, this idea of assimilate, assimilating knowledge and as educators, uh, for course creators, and I think you know, a lot of people who are starting podcasts are maybe in the coaching space and they, they, they want to offer their, their coaching services or courses. We are faced with this challenge of not being in person anymore. And so the workbook is a really good idea. And now connecting that to sacred literature and sacred knowledge, you know, the Vedas were passed down, uh, orally through speech and then they got turned into books and then now there's many other ways to uh, consume that knowledge um i'm i'm curious like how your how do you reconcile the self-abnegation part of of how do you separate out truth and culture and time and place and circumstance and how do you apply it to the modern day because there's so many things that we can look at and be like that doesn't make sense or that's maybe maybe there's a thing that sounds misogynistic or there's there's just so so many messages we get in older scripture you know obviously in in bible and stuff but even in in the vedic literature there's some things that i personally wrestle with yeah how do you planning no, I said plenty. There's plenty, plenty of things There's that are plenty. Like yeah. disturbing. <laughs> like when you hear it, prima facie, you're just like, the f- <laughs> what, what, what is that? <laughs> you know, there's a little aphorism that I used to say a lot. The truth is confronting. And I think the tendency of the postmodern generations, uh, millennials and Gen Z, our tendency is to accept something as true because we believe it. Now, we can believe something that's true, but it's not true because we believe it. And I feel that there's a, there's a little bit of cultural conditioning, you know, even phrases like speak your truth. There's a sort of cultural conditioning where um, we believe that something is true because we believe it. And there's not always the room in our heart to consider that something can be true, even though we wrestle with it or we're confronted by it. And I think in Vedantic or yogic literatures, um, at least the way that they articulate their knowledge, the, the truth is actually expected to be extremely confronting. For example, if you look at the Yoga Sutra and the, um, the Saranapada, which is the second chapter of the book, when Pantanjali is defining avidya. So now the word avidya means ignorance. The word vidya means knowledge and a put it in front of the vidyas, like a preface is the negation of knowledge. So a vidya for yoga sutra and also for Vedanta and Sankhya and all these different schools of Indian philosophy, a vidya is not just like a not knowing. Not knowing would be great. If you just didn't know something, then you come to find out, then now you're out of ignorance. But for these schools, it's not just a not knowing, but it's a perception of wrong knowledge. Now I'll give you an example. When you're dreaming, and you, you, you perceive a whole world when you're dreaming. That's not the world that you're accustomed to in engaging with like in your waking life. And you see that world as true and final and substantial, but actually it's, not, it's neither of those things, but you actually see it as such. So that vision of something that's insubstantial is called a vidya. Something that you're taking, something insubstantial that you're taking as truth, 
but in fact is in natural is avidya. In fact, the the definition. I, anyway, not to get too technical here, but I just want to I want to make this point super clear. When um, Pantanji says, when you take the not self or the non self anatman to be the atman, when you take the temporary anitya to be eternal nitya. When you take the impure asuchi to be pure suchi, and when you take that which is a cause of suffering, dukkha, to be sukha or cause of happiness. So if you look at these, defi- they're the exact opposites, diametric opposites of each other. Nitya anitya, suchi asuchi, vidya avidya. They're, they're, they're the counter opposites of each other. So avidya is the, if, we, if it is true, Let's take this as a premise. If it is true that we as, you know, subjective units are afflicted by avidya, which is the perception of wrong knowledge, then our perception of reality is exactly opposite to truth. According to this definition, therefore, if we are encountering something that is true, there's a good chance that we're going to be confronted by it. There's like a really good possibility that it's going to be confronting. And I feel like with the postmodern generations, like millennials, I'm a millennial too. I'm an old millennial, 1984. I'm an old millennial. Um, we have this tendency to think that our, our truth is the final truth or the final reality. And so if it's confronting, it must not be true. And we don't have the space in our heart to consider how something that's confronting could actually be true. You know, like, for example, you just you use the word misogyny. You read a lot of these old sacred literatures and, you know, the duty of a woman is to serve her husband. Boss, finish. You read something like that and you're just like, misogynism, you know, patriarchal nonsense culture. And it's like, okay, if you ask the same person, can you give the reasons why that's the structure? Now, you have a lot of things to consider if you have to go through that reasoning process. For example, try to explain the reasons why this might be minus the technological advancement that we experience today. Like the, the roles of men and women minus technology may actually make a lot of sense when you're looking at the old world because it's a lot different. Technology equals the playing field quite a bit. But before technology, the things are self-evidently not equal. And so they may develop their social contracts on the basis of what they found to be self-evident. Are we even able to have that insight, having born in a world where there's so much technology and therefore from technology so much egalitarianism is made possible? It's very hard for us to even consider that. So we're getting upset about something, not because it's not true, but we don't have the context and we're just confronted by it. So I think just anyway, as a general point, when it comes to spiritual investigation, I, I think it's true, I'm going to assert that it is the case, that the primary motivation for any such person is the, the quest for truth. That's yeah. what's foundational. I want something that's true. And it doesn't have to just be in line with my own prejudices. You know, prejudice means like a prejudgment, something that's already built into my psyche. From where it has come, that you also don't know. Um, at least Bhagavad Gita is giving insight to this. Krishna Bhagavad Gita, he says that a lot of our prejudices are coming from imprints of things we've experienced previously. Just like sometimes, I'll give an example. You may have had this experience. Has someone ever walked into the room that you don't know, but you like, I don't like them? 
Hmm. Yeah, like a judgment. I don't like judgment. Right. Yeah, totally. And then your your friend's like looking at you, like, well, why don't you like, do you know him? He's like, no, but it's just something about him. I don't like him. And it's like, well, what is that? What is that? Where does that come from? So that, you know, according to Bhagavad Gita, Yoga Sutra breakdown, basically what happens is you have an experience in the past and it creates what's called a samskara, an imprint in your mind. Then when you see an object, you know, in the future, that triggers that imprint in your mind, you superimpose that impression onto the present object. So what you end up not liking is not the object itself that you're dealing with in real time, but the superimposition of an old impression onto the object. And so you will say something like, I don't like him. That has everything to do with you and not that individual. So similarly, when it comes to like understanding what's true, we have this huge obstacle in our way of all these imprints in our mind that complicate our understanding of something in its own right, right? Something in its own. We're understanding it through this screen of imprints instead of understanding something in its own right. So I, I, I'm asserting that for any genuine spiritual practitioner, you have to start with the quest for truth and maybe with the presumption or assumption that I'm going to probably be challenged a lot. I'm probably going to be confronted. And then once you're able to accept that, I think your heart opens up to the possibility of assimilating truths or knowledge in its own right and not only trying to make a knowledge conform to your already uh, conform to your way of thinking, which is a tendency to make reality fit within our own framework. And that's, I mean, that's even more scientific, honestly, right? Like science isn't just trying to confirm its own uh, belief. It's, it's trying to disprove it even. It's, it really, yes. it wants to, it wants to seek truth. So there, there's a lot you said in there that I could, I would love to dive into even further. And um, I think one, you know, one thing that it brings up is, so I love this idea that the truth is confronting because it's like no one really wants to die. Maybe some some people right. going through hard times, but it's not it's not the living being's real goal to die. And and yet we see that happen. So that truth in itself is confronting and it doesn't change what what my truth is. I also believe that the soul is undying, but that's we can get into that another day. Um I also think the truth is beautiful and it can be more beautiful than what we could have even hoped or or like wanted it to be. And I'm I'm curious like as one follow-up question, maybe we can kind of wrangle it into to uh, a short a short back and forth here, but okay. do you like Thought, thought being progressive or scripture being progressive, as Bhaktivinoda Thakur, a writer in in our tradition, says, like the the thought has to have a development in the reader. So we have to do something with it. So if our if our truth compass or meter is really unreliable, how do we how do we know when we've come when we've come across that substance of truth? So yeah, if there's a challenge of using my language here, the challenge of impressions. Right. Our tendency to superimpose our own inner reality onto the outer reality and not be able to understand things for what it is. Then how do we come to how do we come to know if we're deviating from something that's actually true? Am I understanding the question properly? Yeah. I think there should be an element of humility when when entering into the quest for truth. And um, I'll just give you our, the basic epistemological understanding of Vedic discourse is that all, you know, I'm using this language, subjective units, like we're all like little tiny consciousness floating around in the universe. 
universe. And I'm calling it subjective unit. So you can just use the word soul, it would be a lot easier. But, you know, soul, Christianity, people get confused. So I'm just using subjective units. We are um, confronted by what the Vedic literature calls as the four defects. The first one is called Brahma, which means illusion. Not only do we have categorical illusion, which I was talking about earlier, you take the non-self, this body apparatus, for example, to be the self. That's a categorical illusion. But we also have circumstantial illusions, right? Just like you see a rope on the ground and bad lighting as a snake. That's a circumstantial illusion. So that's the first defect. Everyone's got this problem. You got Brahma problem. I got a Brahma problem also, right? Okay. Second defect is called Pramada. Pramada means inattention. So in order for your sensual faculties to give you right information, your mind has to be connected to the sense that's giving you that information. So if your mind, if your sense is doing something, but your mind's not connected, this is called inattention. Pramada. So it sometimes happens, right? You're talking to a friend like real time, but you look on your phone. So even though he's talking to you, that ear, that sound is not giving you any information because your mind is distracted. This is an example of Pramada. Another example of Pramada is when you go into a situation with a, a, a already established paradigm of thinking. Because you already kind of need that to navigate the world around you. So when you go into a scenario with a, a already fixed paradigm, it disallows you from seeing the anomalies of that paradigm and assimilating new information because you've already imposed a paradigm onto the scenario, right? So this is called, this is two aspects of Pramada. That's the second defect. Third defect is called Vipralipsa. Vipralipsa, we generally translate as cheating propensity or it means misrepresentational bias. We misrepresent the facts of perception um, so that they conform to our already established understandings. Uh, so you may, and this, it's, it's not like you do it on purpose. That's why I like this language is misrepresentational bias or maybe they use the word confirmation bias. You don't do it on purpose. It just happens. Uh, so this, this is a third defect. And the fourth defect we have is called karanapattava, which means the limitation of the senses. The eye can only see so far, the ear can only hear so far, and so on. So with these four defects, it makes, these four defects makes reliable knowledge about any subject matter very difficult. It makes your, you, therefore, all your perceptions can be questioned and your inferences, which are largely based on perceptions, they can also be questioned because of these four defects. So the reason I bring this up is saying that not only when you begin the quest for truth, that quest has to be informed or empowered by a humility that, because humility allows you to open up to realities that you would otherwise not have access to. Maybe a simple imagery of that is if you have to transfer water from one cup to another, then one cup has to come down. There's no other way to transfer it. I mean, you could think of like, I'll like toss the water up. I mean, there's, no, that's not gonna work. If you, if you have to transfer water from one vessel to another, one vessel has to go lower. So that humbleness is required for really a transmission of higher knowledge. Um, so that your quest empowered by that humility, you have a chance to circumvent the um, fetters of the four defects that disallow from proper assimilation. I think aside from this understanding of like, okay, I am defective. There's every chance that I don't have a proper orientation of things. And therefore I need to humble myself. Aside from this strategy, if you will, 
for understanding deeper realities. I don't know if it is possible to truly understand when you've deviated from a correct course of understanding or truth or anything like that. In other words, I guess what I'm saying, if I had to use really simple language to explain it, and in a lot of ways, truth, the experience of truth is a revelatory experience. And I know this word revelatory or revelation is a word that triggers these religious misgivings. But even if you look at a lot of science and how it has progressed, some of these scientists, if you, when they describe how they discover certain things, it very much sounds like a revelatory experience. Now, obviously, because they don't have a, maybe perhaps a belief in God or something, you know, they may describe it as an inspiration, the, the, you know, a stroke of luck. But there are many stories of people like figuring out really complicated things in their bathrooms, you know, while taking a bath. Or who is this? Um, I want to say Rabindranath. Tagore? Maybe it's, is it Rabindranath Tagore, the mm-hmm. mathematician, right? Or I don't know if he's a mathematician. He's a writer. No, this is another one. The mathematician. Okay. They did a movie on him. I can't think mm. of his name. Anyway, so when asked how he's getting the insight for all these formulas, he's. I think his answer was, you know, God or the goddess gave it to him. And the, in the movie, also they depict this. My point is to say that it appears. Even when you look at the history of a lot of science also, if one will research it, there's a really good book about this also, The Structures of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. He kind of, he kind of in that book, he's a historian of science, and he kind of breaks the myth that a lot of us have that science progressed in a linear way, where, where, where each subsequent science built itself on the old science. That's a myth. And it's usually a myth that we're allowed to believe because it helps people have more faith, almost a religious faith in science and sciences. But in this book, which is like, I'm going to just keep it real. I felt dumb as hell reading this book. Like people back in the day were just like much smarter than us. (laughs) It's true. I, I, I agree with that. I was like reading a book and I was like, what is he even saying? And it's like two sentences that I can't understand. So it's, it took me a while to like get through that book. But he kind of is, anyway, he's a historian of science and he kind of demonstrates how science is not, the history of science is not progressing in a linear way. But rather what's happening is they're like revelatory experience in the trajectory of the growth of science. So my point saying, bringing all my ideas together here, I'm sorry for sounding a little bit long-winded, but Truth, the truth discovery is very much, it seems, a revelatory experience, or at least there's a strong element of revelatory experience. And what allows someone the opportunity for such a revelatory experience is the ability to humble themselves so that they can circumvent all these defects that fetter um, subjective units in this world and allow themselves to come to a certain knowledge in its own right. So aside from that, humility, combination, and positive revelation, I don't know if you can just get out of the problem of being deviated from truth. Yeah, so this this is sort of what is also called like ascending or descending process. Like, can we build a stairway to heaven or do we get mercy and and get given knowledge? Um, And, you know, just to to kind of poke a little bit to – to talk about this more for me, Please. like the direct sense perception is also one of the accepted forms of evidence, right? Of like, I, I still have to experience something for yes. it to be real for my subjective unit. Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. 
And so there, there, there's this dissonance sometimes. Per, I'll just speak for myself personally, um, where if I, if I read or if I'm part of an institution or if something's going on and, and I'm not in inner alignment yet with it, and while like I can, I can cognitively grasp it, if, if there's not this, re- this harmony principle in my heart that's, that's hard to talk about, then it's not real for me yet. And so I think that's that realization part. And so, you know, is that an accurate way to find truth, to follow that intuition, to follow the inner guru, to follow guru in the heart? How is that talked about in regards to what we're saying? Yeah, this is a very subtle and challenging situation. Anyway, bottom line is where we as tiny little subjects have a serious dilemma on our hands. (laughs) That's just bottom line. So let's just get that out of the way. We do have a serious dilemma on our hands when it comes to the quest for truth. It's not so easy to come to. That's yeah. the point. Whether you're, you believe in science or you believe in religious scriptures, finally, at the end of the day, coming to a substantial, unshakable knowing of like an ultimate reality is basically... Um, there's a there's a feeling of it, or there's a doubt that it may even be possible, and I think this this doubt fuels a lot of postmodern era culture. Mm-hmm. God is philosophy. Dead. God is that, or not only that, God is that, but the idea that you can come to an objective truth. People are doubting that in right. postmodern era philosophy and art, and there's there's nothing like objectively beautiful. That just is a very subjective experience. Anyway, that's bottom line. That if there is an ultimate unchanging, undying reality, can it truly be known in its own right, you know, beyond just our subjective experience? So it's a very serious question. And we have some serious dilemmas. I mean, if these four defects, there are only four of them, but they're substantial enough to keep keep you in ignorance forever. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I went to the ex- direct experience. How does our literature deal with that? So pratyaksha, the word pratyaksha means pratyaksha means right before your eye. So it's something that you're seeing basically directly. It's it's conveying the sense that you have a direct vision of something. Now for Vedic or Vedantic metaphysics, our perception, I say, is not direct. It is mediated through a, a cognitive body composed of manas. Manas means mind, ego, and intelligence. We have, you can call them like cognitive elements. You have gross elements like earth, water, fire, air, and space. Those are like grosser elements. And then you have subtle or cognitive elements called as the mind, the intelligence. And then you have the observer, which is the, that little tiny unit or consciousness. He's looking through the cognitive elements at the world outside. So according to the shape of those cognitive elements, he has a certain perception of the outside reality. So our pratyaksha in, the, in this world domain is not direct. And therefore, it can always almost be, it can al- always, almost always be doubted. That's what I want to say. It can almost always be doubted because it's not direct. Whereas there is this higher form of perception mentioned in Yoga Sutra, also mentioned also in Vedanta. It's, in Vedanta literatures, we use this word um, vaidusha pratyaksha. Or we also use this other word, anubhava, which conveys an unmediated knowing. Like a knowing, if you will, a knowing without thinking. 
And yoga literature, they also use the word samadhi, which is, it's annoying without thinking. So how do you know it? Like I said, in our world, our knowing is mediated through these cognitive elements. And yoga tradition, for example, the whole practice is to shut down the function of the cognitive elements so that the self, which is also witnessed by nature, can see reality unmediated through those elements. Now, is such a thing possible? There are many sages out there who have written books about the possibility as such. And of course, as a person committed to Vedanta, I believe such a thing is indeed possible, that there can be an unmediated knowing of reality, but there has to be a process by which one can transcend the functions of the cognitive elements, a sort of mystic vision. But that's the hard work then of any spiritual practice. So anyway, at the end of the day, seeing is believing, and until you are having such samadhi experiences or vaidusha pratyaksha experiences, I said that it can almost always be doubted. And certainly religious practitioners and uh, obviously atheists and so on, they doubt whether this is actually possible. And it's totally understandable. And if, if such a thing is not to be doubted, if it is to be believed, then the only way you can come to really truly know it for yourself is by direct experience. And that's when the process of practice comes into play and all that. So they have, so basically every tradition, whether you're a scientist or not, a scientist or a, a, a bhakta or a yogi or whatever you want to call yourself, there has to be this process by which you come to understand that knowledge. And if you accept the process, then you may come to that understanding. And if you don't, if the the, the, they couldn't sell it good enough to you, then it doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true, but it means you're not, you're cut off from that understanding because you couldn't go through the process of realizing that. Right. You have to, you have to follow the experiment to reach the conclusion. And yeah, so, I mean, really well laid out and organized. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like there's, um, the, the seeing is believing this high, this idea of higher perception is really interesting. And I feel like, you know, maybe in the future, a long form conversation podcast would be really cool to, to go even deeper. But as we're, as we're wrapping up, like a couple final thoughts on that, I think with so much misinformation being spread now on the internet, like the, the need for wisdom, the need for truth is maybe more than ever. Yes. And and so, you know, the, the Vedantic literature, the Vedantic line of thought, what would you say it was developed linearly? It was passed down in, a, in an unbroken chain? We say like that, yes. And, and so for me, that. That, that definitely instills, like, like I'd be missing out on thousands of years of development of a, of a thought and a practice. And that gives me access to, like, if my sense perception is limited, it at least expands my perception. It, it, it gives me more information. So you're talking about the higher perception. Seems like part of the higher perception is acknowledging that my, only my mother can tell me who my father is. Yes, that's not, it's, not, it's, it's not the higher perception, but rather it's that humility point I brought up earlier. It's the humbleness to understand, I can't know my, who my father is directly, so I have to ask my mother. Right. So you have to humble yourself before someone who has the information. But then the doubt that comes up with that is like, well, who knows? Right. And that is a huge topic that I I genuinely want to uh, talk to you more about in the future because it is a, it's very real and present for me is like, you know, we, we live in, in a world where the word guru 
um, has become almost like means don't trust that person. But the, <laughs> it's crazy, but that's the the word was right. your, your, the the person you could trust the most. That that was what it what it is supposed to be. And so I think that would be a really fascinating conversation to get into. But for the time being, I think it's safe to say, for in my life, there are people who know the road ahead way more than me, and they've helped me. They've said, "Hey, this is coming up." They've told me, I've gotten there, saw the thing, I have some trust. And so I think, you know, kind of oof, grounding back down into podcast land and broadcast land. So any kind of information sharing person who wants to get their message out, trust is the single most important thing that we can do. It's not attention as much as it is trust. Yes. And and so I, I feel like what you're putting out, the conversations you're having are so real. They're, you know, you guys are talking about like, applicable things today what's happening today from for for young people especially but but everyone and you're having really real conversations chit chat was an epic you know phase of of your of your podcast the arise of the honest man's podcast really looking forward to seeing how that continues to grow and i i really encourage everyone to to check both of these out i'll put the links in the show notes but you know as we as we wind down i wanted to just give you another another uh, bit of airtime to share anything whether it's some books recommendations or just another thought or whatever you're working on that you're excited maybe there's a course coming up I just you know how can people you know hear more from you um well i don't usually encourage people to hear more from me <laughs> I, I certainly can. It's that's my job. Don't worry, you don't have to do that. But, but if if I encourage people to, where could they? You know, what's the best? What's coming up for you? I mean, you can definitely check out my stuff on social media. I mean, I mostly Instagram is there. I have a website that's on my Instagram. You can check that out. I'll develop it more. But um, since I'm giving some room to express a, a point, also, I think I like to end with this. This is an aphorism that I did come up with myself, so I'm very proud of it. It's not every day that you can say something that's wise, so when you do, you should just write it down. <laughs> <laughs> that's wise advice. There's two, there, you got at least two, right? But um, one thing I, I, I said many years ago, and I really, I've repeated it ever since, that evolution of inquiry precedes evolution of being. And I think it's a really good maxim that when it, at least when it comes to spiritual quest or the quest for truth as we've been using that language in this podcast, then the evolution of inquiry precedes the evolution of being. And so far as the sort of questions you ask are asking allows for, you can say, for certain doors to be open. If you're asking about what happened on last week's episode of Game of Thrones, okay, that's a question. But that question doesn't afford you the sort of knowledge that you may need to become and let's say peaceful, because at the end of the day, whatever you claim to know, if you're not experiencing imperturbable peace and happiness internally, then the question is, it's a fair question to be asked. Then what is the, where is the knowledge? What knowledge? If you're not experiencing imperturbable peace and happiness, what, and Pat Krishna himself says this in Gita, Nasti bhutera yuktasha, nacha yuktasha bhavana, nacha bhavayata shanta, na, so so he says, if you don't have good intelligence, and for one who is ayuktasha, the word ayuktasha means not sense-controlled or disconnected. The word, I like to use the word disconnected or alienated. 
self-alienate. A lot of us suffer from this problem, especially with technology, a little bit of self-alienation, especially COVID. So for one who's a yukta, then there cannot be enlightened intelligence and there cannot be bhavana. Bhavana means like contemplation of a deep reality. If you can think about the deepest reality you know, I'll have everyone do this exercise. Think about the, right now in this moment, the deepest reality you know. Now, how often are you absorbed in that reality? <laughs> Let's be real. It's, it's not often. We're, we're, our, our senses are distracted. So for one who is a yuktasha, which really means not sense controlled, or you can say disconnected, there cannot be enlightened intelligence and there cannot be bhavana, that deep concentration or meditation or higher reality. And for one who does not have bhavana, there cannot be peace. Nacha bhavayata shanta. Na shanta means there cannot be peace. And for one who is not peaceful, kutasukam, where is happiness? So at the end of the day, whatever knowledge we claim to be having, even the knowledge of technological development and all that, if it cannot bring about the state of imperturbable peace and happiness inside, which will lead to that reflected outside, then the question may become, where, where is the knowledge? So our inquiry has to go deeper. It has to go deeper than the um, central fluctuations that we tend to be infatuated with. And if we can get past that and ask deeper questions, um, then we're afforded deeper knowledge. And with that knowledge, we can transform our being. So evolution of inquiry precedes evolution of being. Keep asking deep questions. Even if you're already part of a tradition, you're already part of a faith, you already have commitments to science or whatever it may be. If you're a sincere person, until you are having the experience of unmediated knowing, which is a huge claim if such a thing is even possible, then there's some questions to be asked. And so go on asking those questions and go on evolving for the good, not only for yourself, but if you become an evolved entity, that is also for the good of the whole world. Imagine if everyone took that seriously, then the problems we have today would be a lot less severe. That's my final um, going out message if I had to give one. I love that. The evolution of inquiry precedes the evolution of being. I love this. Perfect questions, perfect answers. Yes. Jai Jagannath, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for going deep on this, on these topics. Listeners, thank you for joining in. You know, I know scriptural evidence isn't maybe everyone's cup of tea, but I think the search for truth is is a universal human thing. And yes. I, I hope that you got something from this. Please go check out Jai Jagannath's channels and uh, follow his stuff. I, I guarantee you, you will get some some benefit from it. It's been really inspiring seeing what you're putting out. And yeah, let's let's stay in touch, man. Thank you so much for Definitely. coming out to be on air. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Beyond Air. I hope you enjoyed it and are now one step closer to turning on your microphone and broadcasting your message to the world. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know how I can help you on your broadcasting journey by getting in touch with me and maybe even apply for a strategy session if you want to discuss your podcast idea. You can reach me at www.podcast-farm.com. Until next time, my friends, I'm Kaylee Marks, and thanks for tuning in to Be On Air.